Father, thank you so much that we have been able to gather outside in this grassy lot right next to the building that you've given us here, 2701 Joy Row. We thank you for that. Um, I pray, Father, you'd speak to us today. I pray that you would show us that you are not some harsh Father, but you are an immensely loving Father. And Lord, I, I, I lift my eyes right now to Judah. Um, I pray that the day would come when he would know that he has been fearfully and wonderfully made. And God, I pray that he would come to a second birth, that he would come to put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would bless him to a thousand generations, Lord. May grace be all over him and his seed, Lord, until you return. We ask now for the power of your spirit to be present in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. I was recently listening to a youth, he's no longer a youth pastor, he had been a youth pastor for years, now, now he was a, a lead pastor, but he was talking about his years of being a youth pastor. And he said in his years of being a youth pastor, he had come across scores and scores and scores and scores of parenting styles. And probably tons of parenting styles represented here this morning. But he said with all the variant distinctions and parenting styles, he said you could basically reduce it down to two main approaches, two buckets. Approach A of parenting goes like this. It says to your child, I love you so much that I want you to like me a whole lot and I'm not going to say anything to you that might jeopardize how you feel about me in any given moment. Approach B says, I love you so much that I want God's best for you, which means at times I'll have to be okay with you not being thrilled with me because I'm going to tell you some things you need to know. Now let me ask you this. Which of those approaches is the most loving approach? Approach A or approach B? What do you think? You, that's pretty meek right there. What do you think? B, right? So whether you're a parent of a child or you're just seeking to influence others, approach B is the way to go. Now, now where do we find the power to do that? Where do we find the motivation? Do you remember the big idea of last week? Anybody remember that big idea from the first half of 1 Corinthians 4? What did Paul basically say to them with caveats? I don't care what you think. I care what God thinks. And he says, I know you all think I'm a spectacle. He, they, they said that. I know you think I'm a fool. I know you think I'm refuse and scum. I won't break down uh, the semantics of those words, but you get the idea. I know you think that, but God says I'm a steward. God says I'm a servant. So I care most what he says, far more than what you says, and in caring most for what he says, I'll be able to care for you more than if I cared for you most. Now, speaking of parenting, as we finish out chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4, he is going to now dramatically change his tone. Last week, he harnessed the rhetorical device, which often we, we abuse, 
It can be used, though, with effect by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is sarcasm. He used the sarcasm last week. You remember that? But now he shifts gears, and he's going to talk to them as a father. In other words, he's going to go from toughness to tenderness. And if I were to distill or crystallize the big idea of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, it would be this. Paul is saying, obey your father. He's not saying it harshly, obey your father, right? He's saying, obey your father. Now, there will be obvious applications for how we are to lead as human fathers. Certainly many applications for what our heavenly father is like and how we relate to him. And, and we'll touch on some of those applications along the way, five of them as a matter of fact. But two more things before we dive in the text. Number one, if you've read the scripture at all, both Old and New Testament, you'll know that one of the ways God frequently um, reveals himself and relates to his people is as a father, right, appealing to his sons. You've heard me say several times in the last few months, I've been reading through Proverbs to prepare for a series next year. Proverbs chapters 1 through 8, some 18 times Solomon writes, listen my son, hear my son. And I say to you, that's a reflection of the way God desires to relate to his people, a loving father to his beloved children. The other thing is this. And I know this might step on some toes of certain religions, but the Bible actually forbids calling any man father as a formal ecclesiastical title. Matthew 23, 9. That said, there is clearly in the scripture the concept of being a spiritual father to people. Paul is a spiritual father to the church at Corinth. Paul is a spiritual father to Timothy, so it's there. And so under this one big idea, I just want to walk the text and make a few applications. The big idea being, enjoy your father. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look at your uh, bulletin. I asked Heather to have that printed out recently because I, wanted, I want people to know that whoever is preaching, we're, not, we're just not preaching our opinion, right? We preach the word of God. It is the word of God that is our message. Verse 14 Paul says, I do not write these things to you to make you what? Ashamed, I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children. Now what we find in that first verse under the big idea of obey your father is his goal in telling them to obey him. Paul's goal is not to humiliate them, okay? His goal is not just to push them down. God, his goal is actually to help them. And sometimes to help, you have to admonish. That's the word there. It means warn. Paul Barnett, in his commentary on this text, I think elucidates a little bit of what this is about. And it ties into what I opened up with this morning. Quote, shallow sentiment rarely issues warnings because it cares more about being liked than about the welfare of the other person who may actually be in spiritual danger. True love 
as shown by a parent or a spiritual father or a spiritual mother or a spiritual leader, will express concern and, if appropriate, warning. His motivation is not to harm them or to hurt them, but to help them. And sometimes to help, you have to admonish. Now, his other motivation is this, too. Paul, because sometimes we have a leader that's a spiritual father, somebody over us, and we can think in our weaker moments, oh, they just want to control me. And there is authoritarianism in, in the misuse of control, to be sure. But Paul's motivation is not his control to control them, but his loving passion for them. What does he call these people at Corinth? Last few two words of verse 14. What does he call them? Beloved children. And by the way, that that is not some kind of temperate word. The word beloved right there is the word agape. What kind of love is that? That is God's love. That is sacrificial love. That is blood on the cross love. And so I want to make a first application to human fathers, to spiritual fathers, to human mothers, to spiritual mothers, to anybody who leads anything. There is this crucial component to being a spiritual leader. You must love those you are seeking to influence. If you don't love, you ain't getting out of the starting gates. You're nothing but tinkling brass. Paul writes about love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says love is patient and love is kind and and all the rest. And also, that true love will, when necessary, warn somebody. So let me ask anybody who leads anything here, which is almost everybody in some way, do you love those you are seeking to influence and to lead? Now moving on to verses to verse 15, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Anybody know what a guide is? B- biblically? A guide was actually a position in the Greco-Roman world in which a slave or a servant was appointed by a household to either school the child or raise the child or at least make sure the child had some things together. Now, I would imagine, as you would, that some of those guides, as they were called, technically, had a real love for the kids, right? But few of them had the love of a father for them Because they weren't fathers. They had not fathered them. And Paul here is saying, listen, you have a lot of guides, but you only have one father. And that father was me. He he literally says, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Simply put, many of the Corinthians came to Christ under his preaching of the gospel. Thus he was their father. And as I was contemplating this verse and that thought, something came to mind that has been, I think, an unfortunate thing I've observed through the years in ministry, and that is this. Often when someone is having a difficulty, maybe in life or in their walk with God or in their marriage or or, or whatever the case may be, 
they often tend to go find some guide instead of actually going to their spiritual leaders. And they often do that because they're afraid of what their spiritual leaders might tell them, namely the truth. Paul is saying, guides have a place. But you need to look to your spiritual father, which was him leading that church. And, and I'll tell you what, God, when, when God saved me, he just knew I was so jacked up and had so much world in me that he put four men successively in different places in my life. I, I wouldn't have called them spiritual fathers, but in retrospect, that's exactly what they were. From an old guy that was 86 years old with one leg that was shorter than the other and kind of hobbled. Awesome man. Awesome man. Charlie McNutt to another older man. He was in his 70s. Elder Eldon Bergen to another guy, Robert Vincent, who is still alive, and, and Mark Minnick. And I just want to make the second application. If you will be a, uh, let me make an application for those who have spiritual leaders, and we all do. Do you look to them or do you go to other places for counsel? Not saying don't go to other places. I'm saying include them. They were not including Paul. And then I would say for those of us who are spiritual leaders, and again, that's, that's really all of us, if you would be a good spiritual mother or father leader, you must lead with the gospel. Now let's be honest. If you're a parent and you've got a bunch of beautiful little rugrats under your knees and you're just trying to manage the household, sometimes you can forget to apply the gospel in leading them, right? Am I right? Just things get tiring. But if we don't lead with the gospel, what happens is we're going to create either legalist, do better, doggone it, right? Or, and probably this, we're going to create hopeless people because all of us are going to fail, right? All of us are going to fail. So a good spiritual father and mother leader must lead with the gospel. That's why as a parent of any form that I'm addressing this morning, you yourself must be growing in the gospel. How do I apply the gospel to all of life? Y'all with me? Verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. There's an oh, by the way, I want to capture out of this verse. Part of being a good spiritual parent, mother, father, leader, is making sure that you not only, far more than admonishing, you actually commend, you encourage. And Paul does that with Timothy right here. He calls Timothy his beloved and faithful child. And I'm sure Timothy was quite encouraged by seeing that commendation penned in Holy Writ. But what I want to dial in on is when Paul says, be an imitator of me. Now, honest question. Does that make you a little nervous? The idea that you're going to tell somebody, hey, I want you to imitate me. Does that, does that make anybody nervous? Somebody think, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm not sure, so sure about that. Paul's saying that, right? It's, in the bla it's black and white. He says, being an imitator of me. Now, here's what Paul's not saying. Paul is not saying he's got it all together. Paul is not saying he is Mr. Perfect. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy 1.17 that he is the chief among sinners. Rather, 
Paul is simply highlighting a critical and crucial aspect of what spiritual leadership looks like, namely, setting the example. There is power in our example. Conversely, we can say all the right things, but if our walk don't match our talk, we undermine the message that we're trying to impart. So Paul says, you got to be an imit- imitate me. Now, he's not saying imitate me in any old way, right? He says his ways in Christ. He'll say later in his book, follow me as I follow. What does he say? Christ. That's what Paul is trying to say. There's power and example. And I just remember, there's those four guys. Charlie McNutt, 80, 87 years old, teaching me to pray. But then he modeled it. He came and stayed with us shortly before he went to glory. And I was off at work at our neighbor's call my wife and say there's an old man walking up and down your short driveway moving his hands every which way she said oh never mind that's pastor charlie talking to the lord he walked it out he had a life of prayer and I, I could see that he set the example i think of eldon bergen who not only trained me to share the gospel in training me he took me with him to share the gospel which was part of my training I think of uh, Robert Vincent, just the gentlest man I've ever known. And the Lord knows I need a lot of that still yet to be infused into me. And when I think about how this man loves his wife and loves his kids, it is an inspiration, conviction, and exhortation to me. And then I think of Mark Minnick, guy. He was one of my spiritual fathers. The way he studied the Word of God relentlessly showed me that if I was truly going to be a pastor, I really needed to take seriously studying the Bible. So here's my third application. It's for all of us here. Do you set an example worth following? Do you set an example worth following? Now, when I hear that, if I was surprised by this question, if I was you, I would probably say, but I screw up all the time. Anybody Anybody here would say that? This is the first holiness church, right? Like nobody screws up. Three of us, three of us. Yes, you do. But you know, you can set the example after you screw up with what? You can model repentance, right? You can model model ownership. You can model the fact that your trust is not in your performance, but in the finished work of Christ before those you're seeking to lead. Now let's go to verses 18 through 20. Paul now turns up the heat a little bit again. He says, some are arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but of power. So what's going on there? Here's the point. Some of those so-called wannabe leaders there usurping his authority and teaching all kinds of craziness, they were talking a big game. The word is puffed up. It actually has reference to a leather bag that they would fill with air. He said, you're nothing but a bunch of leather bags, arrogant guys peacocking around. He says, I'm going to come to you, and he says, I'm going to show you that the real proof, the validity of my message is the fact that this message has changed my life. In other words, the kingdom of God is not just in talk, but it's in power. 
the gospel and the kingdom of God is displayed by a changed life and a changing life. So that brings me to application number four. Does your life move beyond talk and demonstrate that the gospel changes a life and then keeps on changing a life? There is never a point in your walk in Christ in which you enter a state of retirement. We should constantly be growing so that Paul, what Paul said to Timothy, he could say about any believer that your profiting or your growth or your transformation is appearing before many. Now the last verse here is verse 21. Now he really returns to his tone from the first part of the chapter. He says, shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He is, in fact, reverting to a bit of toughness right here, isn't he? But a loving, godly, spiritual father, mother, sister, brother, leader, whatever, includes in her or his arsenal a mixture, as appropriate, of toughness and tenderness. Now, a rod there is actually a biblical metaphor for discipline. And by the way, if you are a young parent, I would invite you to read, as Pastor Bergen did with us, the book of Proverbs, where the rod there speaks of physical chastening, spanking. Um, God's word is not outdated. God hasn't changed his mind. You're not smarter than God. You're not nicer than God. God's word stands, and his wisdom is for us today. But in context, Paul is speaking of the rod, as it were, metaphorically for church discipline. And Paul is saying, if necessary, I will come to you with church discipline because I love you so much, I want God's best for you. And in fact, as we get to chapters 5 and 6 next few weeks, we're going to see he does just that. So application number 5. Does your spiritual mothering fathering, sistering, brothering, leading, all of that, does it include as appropriate under the leadership of the Holy Spirit both toughness and tenderness? Because they're both required to be a spiritual leader. Paul is saying again and again and again in this text these three simple words which are obey your Father. And in saying that, you know what he's basically saying? Obey my authority. Obey my authority. Obey your authority. And I think that's, in closing, important to emphasize just for a couple minutes. Because we do live in a time in which people seem to hold up as kind of a twisted virtue, questioning, bucking, even rejecting authority, fulfilling the downward spiral of Romans chapter 1. But as Stephen Um, pastor in Boston, puts it, quote, there is no such state as non-authority. There's no state of non-authority. There is never an authority vacuum. Even if someone overthrows authority, that person becomes the new authority by virtue of overthrowing the preceding authority. And don't we see that in the streets, by the way? Overthrowing authority. See, we all live under authority. It's not like, well, I just don't live under authority. No, no, you do. Just like there's only, at the end of the day, 
two irreducible categories of parenting styles, there's only two ways to address authority. Everybody lives under authority. The only question is this. Are you going to live under your authority or are you going to live under God's authority? That's, That's the only issue. One is the position of arrogance. Pride comes before a fall and a haughty look before destruction. The other is the position of humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. One is the position of futility. The other is of human flourishing. One is the position of life. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end of that way is death. The other is the position of life. They were rejecting Paul's authority, just like people do today. You say, well, wait a second. I know you're you're winding this down, but how do people reject Paul's authority? He ain't even around. How would you answer that? He's not around, but his epistles are. They're in the sacred canon of Scripture. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, is inspired by God. Literally, Spirit breathed. God breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, the idea is the person of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is ours. But today, there is a movement called Red Letter Christianity. I just want to hit this. Anybody heard of Red red Letter Christianity? Red Letter Christianity sounds super spiritual. We love the red letters, the red letters of Jesus. But it is actually an utterly demonic movement. It is. See, what Red Letter Christianity says, and they have their podcasts, their their conferences, it is a full-fledged movement with all the books. It goes like this. We just want to pay attention to Jesus' words. You know, the red words in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what they do is they downplay the epistles, the letters, like the letter I'm preaching from, for instance. And this movement holds itself as being apolitical, that is non-political, but it's actually intensely political. And it was started by two guys named Shane Clyborne and Tony Campolo, among others. And this is what they say. They say, listen, Christians really shouldn't be so concerned about, say, abortion or, say, uh, issues of sexuality, because Jesus really didn't say that much about that stuff. Now, that is... I'll just tell you, patently false with the red letters themselves, not to mention, in a sense, the whole Bible is red letter. It's all God's words. And it's no wonder that red letter Christians are generally quite okay with abortion as the death count of preborn babies numbers in the thousands daily. And it's no wonder that it's cool among them to quote, well, love is love no matter who it is, as 
the fabric of the nuclear family continues to tear apart at the seams. And I'll, I'll tell you, and it's more obnoxious, overt forms, red-letter Christians actually say what they're thinking anyway, that Paul is a misogynist, a homophobe, a racist, and all that. Now, that's all utterly crazy when you actually read what he wrote. Now, Paul ain't politically correct. Paul would say a few things, but Paul said everything he said consistent with the gospel. And now listen, if that's a movement from the left, it is also true that people on the right can certainly overlook other scriptures, right? Or twist other scriptures or distort other scriptures. But I'll say this, this, this strategy moves beyond a satanic strategy to a sta- satanic strategy to outright reject the authority of the word of God, part and parcel. That is to reject the authority of a good and loving and gracious father. And you know what? There ain't nothing new to that. That cut and paste approach began in the garden years and years ago. Did God really say, Satan said, right? He said, you can eat of that. You will not surely die. Pastor Charles, you come over here and help out. Heather over here. Awesome, thank you. He deceived them into thinking that he was looking out for the best of them, but instead he was actually trying to destroy them. Instead of flourishing, it was the fall. Instead of life, it was death. And the same thing happened with one of the most successful heretics of the first century. His name was Marcion. Marcion, who lived in the first century, Polycarp, you ever heard of Polycarp? I love church history. Polycarp was a guy who was martyred, and on his, as he was being martyred, he said, I will not deny Jesus my king. He's done me no wrong for 80 and 6 years. How then can I blaspheme my Lord? He said of Marcion that he was a disciple of Satan. And of course, like all good heretics, just like heretics today, he was intensely appealing. He smiled a lot. He gave much donations to the church out of his richness, all of that. But he said, the angry God of the Old Testament is not Jesus of the New Testament. That's a twisting in tons of ways. He rejected much or most of the New Testament, including Paul's epistles, because Paul is so black and white about holy living, and because he quotes so much Old Testament scripture, and he portrayed himself as a a fan of the people, for the common man. But he abused the the New Testament expression, we're not under law, but under grace. And his damning theology did just that. And we here at Restore want to stand up and say, all 66 books are red letters. They all have the full weight of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it's not going to be enough for you just to affirm that. You must increasingly dive into this book because Christians are being swept to and fro by every wind of doctrine in this incredible season we're living in. And if there is a time for you to sink some roots deep down in the Word of God, it is right now. Obey your Father. That's the word of the Lord. That means if you have a physical father, yeah, he's not perfect. Seek to obey him. And if you didn't have a physical father or a very good one, I I am so sorry about that because that's true for, for many people. 
But I want you to know that you actually have spiritual fathers around you who want to lead you. Not just pastors, but other older Christians who've walked with the Lord, who have miles on their tires. Seek them. Sit under their authority. And remember, most of all, this message is about obeying the authority of your heavenly Father who did two things. He sent the living word, Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. And he, on that cross, took the fact that you have not kept God's word. He suffered for you and I on the cross, bearing our bucking heavenly authority, bearing our rejecting God's authority, paying the price, and rising again. And if you trust him, you're adopted into the family, and God would say to you, as Paul does to Timothy, you are his beloved child. And then he gave us this written word, and I just want to appeal to you again to sink your teeth deep into the meat of God's word. All 66 books, in a sense, are red letter. The Old Testament promised Christ. The Gospels announced Christ. The book of Acts records first century preaching. And the, book of the epistles show us how to apply the gospel to all the stuff that we read about even in the headlines today. This is the Word of God. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for letting us dive into your Word and sit under your authority. Lord, I, I, I pray for anyone here who has never turned to Christ that they would open their eyes, open their heart by the gift of the Spirit to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for Christians who are not anchored and rooted in God's Word, are more riveted to headlines than to the heart of the Father as revealed in the Word of God. So Father, I, I pray that as we stand to sing, we wouldn't check the box. We would fully immerse ourselves in worship, Lord, that we would truly, as it were, maybe quite literally, get on our faces in this grass before you, but certainly get on our faces and our hearts before you. Lord, would you work in our hearts, and would you move by your Spirit, and would you do business in every quarter of our lives where necessary so that we might more and more submit with great satisfaction under the, under the all-encompassing authority of an immensely gracious Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.